0: Yes, give it up one more time for the choir, the band, the worship team. Uh, Hey, there's some people also still coming in. So if you have a a seat next to you, can you just raise your hand? And so people coming in can uh, find a seat. Uh, Keep it up for another awkward 10 seconds. And then uh, if you're coming in and you're looking for a seat, please feel free. All right, that's good enough. All right, so my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. And... uh, (laughs) I have memorized every episode of Martin, by the way. If there's anybody who wants to, if you want to battle me, I'll see you in the cafeteria after service. Uh, But so grateful to be with you guys today, and uh, a special shout out to anybody who's with us today for the first time. Uh, This is a time in our service where we have a time where we uh, talk about some scripture, and before we do that, you know what? I want us to to pray and to center ourselves a little bit before uh, we hear from God's word to us. God. God. You alone can open our ears to hear your word. God, you alone can speak to us to know uh, exactly what it is that you would have us to know. God, you alone can strengthen us. You can lead us. And God, in these, in these moments, uh, God, I'm not relying on myself to, to be clever or to persuade anyone. But Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and speak to us through your word. We ask this in Jesus name we pray. Amen and amen. Uh, So there's a story about an author by the name of Dorothy Sayers, and Dorothy Sayers was British, and she wrote a series of detective novels. Her main character in these detective novels was a a guy named Lord Peter Wimsley. That's a proper British name, if there ever was one. Um, Lord Peter Wimsley was her character, and he was a detective that would solve all of these different crimes. As the stories go on, you start to see him solving all these complex crimes and situations, but his personal life is kind of a mess. So after a few stories uh, about this character, you start to see a new character emerge. The new character's name was Harriet Vane, and she was a female mystery writer and one of the first women to get through Oxford. In the story, Harriet and Peter fall in love. Now, up until this point, Peter was a really unhappy and broken bachelor, and Harriet Vane shows up, and her love for him starts to heal him. You start to see his life transformed, uh, and it's not because of himself. It's because this new character comes into the story and changes him. Now, it's really interesting. Dorothy Sayers sees this character who she loves, and in order to change him, she writes herself into the story. What do you see the parallels between Harriet Vane and herself? Uh, just like Harriet Vane, Dorothy Sayers was a novelist. Just like Harriet Vane, Dorothy Sayers was one of the first women to get through Oxford. And she writes herself into the story so that she can help her character out. She looked into the world that she had created, fell in love with the chief character, and wrote herself in so that she can heal him. Christians in this season, in these next few weeks, all over the globe are celebrating something called Christmas. And Christmas is a season where we celebrate a time where God himself wrote himself into his own story to heal us. Long before Dorothy Sayers ever wrote a novel and put pen to paper, God had a creation, and God looked down into his own creation and wrote himself into his own story. When Jesus arrived, it wasn't just a baby. It was God writing himself into our lives. There's a scripture in the book of Ephesians uh, written by a man named Paul where he says, you and I are God's poema. Uh, it's from the, uh, the, the word that we get the word poem from. We are his, his creation, his masterpiece, his workmanship. God looked down on our story, his creation, and he wrote himself in. We are God's masterpiece. And God looked into the world that he loved, wrote himself into the story in Jesus Christ. And there's a man named John who wrote one of the gospels Uh, Called the Gospel of John, and he, he tells about how God wrote himself into his own story. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness. And yet the darkness did not overcome it. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh and inhabited and dwelt and lived among us. We observed this glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Here's what Christmas means. Christmas is much more than a tradition where you can get around family and exchange gifts. Christmas means that God came near to us. God of the universe descends to come and to be near to us. And and why would God do that? Well, God did this to build a relationship with me and you. God came down not to give us a rule book, but so that you and I can actually have a thriving relationship with him. One of the things that's so dope about Christianity that distinguishes itself from other faiths is, in other faiths, you have a prophet or you have a sage or you have a, a book of rules or uh, an enlightened path that someone gives you this path and they say, "Here, get after it, follow these teachings, go down this road, and then you'll get enlightenment, salvation, whatever it is." Christianity says that it's not God. It's not that God sends down instructions like a prophet. It's not that God sends down a path to enlightenment. God himself comes down, and God comes down so that you and I can have a relationship with him. Now, here's one of the things that's so interesting about uh, when I talk to a lot of people. Um, uh, one of the first things that sticks out about Christianity, and maybe if you're new to church, this is what sticks out to you, is rules. And maybe the way that you've seen God growing up is that if you do a good job of following these rules, then God will be pleased with you, and then God will like you, and then you'll have a relationship. But it never works like that. Rules are certainly a part of the relationship, but rules could never, ever create a relationship. Uh, I cut my teeth years ago doing family court, and there was only one time in family court where everybody was in a good mood, where even the judges who were curmudgeon were nice to people. Uh, it was during adoption cases. Anybody who works in the family court system knows that this is true. During the adoption cases, everybody's happy, everybody is smiling, and you see someone become a part of someone fam- someone's family, and it is, it is a beautiful sight to see. Here's one thing I have never seen in all the adoptions in the world. I bet there's not one case in the history of adoptions where you see someone become a child because they followed rules. <laughs> Nobody has ever said, hey, prospective mom and dad, here, give, me, give me your rule sheet, and if I can keep these rules, will you adopt me? It never works like that. It's always the parents in pursuit of the child. And when they pursue that child and pay all of the fees and go through the entire process to bring that child into their home, of course there's rules to make your bed and to not talk back to people. But those rules never create a relationship. Here's what Christmas means. God coming near is God filing adoption papers for you. It's to create the relationship between you and between him. God went to infinite lengths to get close to me and you. And no matter where you are today, no matter what you're thinking about God or love or faith or whatever, here's what I want you to know. God wants to be close to you. Now, The only way that you and I can really truly be close to God is if we can actually know who God is. Um, uh, One of the things that's really funny, um, there's a lot of people who have either gone through it or they're going through it now or they're about to go through it. It's a quarter-life crisis, Uh, 25-year-olds, like the world is coming down. Um, And one of the things that they're looking for, everybody's looking, not everybody, a lot of them are looking to to get married and to settle down. And every now and then, there'll be a 25-year-old guy sitting in my office talking about how he just met the one. And he's gloating and, and it's like, man, you know, she's, oh man, she just smells so good and everything is so great. And everything is all roses. They'll go out and they'll share their dinner like, hey, listen, what you, we could just divide it in half. Whatever, whatever, I, whatever you want, just take it. When me and my wife go out now, I'm like, listen, I want all of my food. You order what you want, I'm, I order what I want. But puppy love is such a misnomer because you don't know who that person is. You don't know who they are, and yet you're gonna, you have this great future envision vision for someone, but you don't even know who they are. Real love, you have to know who that person is. Now, here's what the Christmas story is telling us about God and our ability to know who God is. It's that in Jesus, we can actually see who God is. Think about it like this. If you were to go outside today and look at the sun, uh, you can't today because there's no sun outside, but <laughs> on a sunnier day, if you were to go out and stare up into the sky at 12 noon, what would you see? you would see a blur. You can't, with your own two eyes, look at the sun. It will burn out your retina, quite literally. It's too powerful, it's too dynamic, it's too explosive for our eyes to be able to handle it. And if you really want to get a good look at the sun, you need a filter. Filters don't block you from seeing the sun, filters enable you to actually see the sun. They allow you to see the sun in all of of its radiance and glory. They allow you to see the sunspots and the intricacies of this constellation. Now, if you want to see the real sun, you need a filter. And here's what Christmas is telling us about our ability to know who God is, that in Jesus Christ coming, he is the filter that allows us to see God. In Exodus, there's scriptures of uh, God telling Moses and other people that you can't see me and live. Now, in Jesus Christ, he has come in a way that you and I could relate to God. In the same way that you cannot walk outside and see the sun in all of its beauty and its glory just by looking at it, you and I could never fully take in all that God is and all of his divinity in and of just looking at God or reading about God. We need a filter. Uh, There's a theologian by the name of Charles Wesley, and he wrote a a song called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, If you've been around churches for Christmas time, you might have heard this song sung. And there's a line in there in the second verse where it says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Now this is great theology that he's not saying veiled in flesh, the Godhead hidden. He's saying that uh, the veil of, uh, of Jesus coming in the flesh is necessary for us to actually see who God is. Now, we can see in Jesus the fullness, as the author of Colossians says, the fullness of God's glory in Christ. We can see God's humility, his love, his brilliance, his wisdom, his compassion, all of the attributes about God we see in the fullness of Christ. And God came so that we would know what God is like. Uh, there's times in Scripture where Jesus is arguing with religious elites, and they said, well, show us the Father. And he says, if you want to see what the Father looks like, here I am. You're looking at him. In Christ." Uh, We have an ability to actually see what God is like, and God came close to us so that you can know what he's like. Man, one of the things that we're going to kick off next uh, month is uh, in some time where we're going to be really putting a lot of emphasis on our ability to read Scripture. And a lot of times people struggle with reading Scripture because it feels like a chore and an obligation and something you're just not good at instead of an opportunity to have God himself revealed to you. It's a much different thing. Here's what I want you to see about your approach to scripture, that one day, maybe it's now, maybe it'll be in a couple of weeks, that when you come to a portion of scripture, when you read the Bible, you're going to it like a hungry person going to the dinner table saying, God, feed me. So God has come down in the flesh in the person of Christ so that we could actually know who he is. But you know what? It's it's not enough that we stop at uh, God came close to us. Uh, As beautiful and brilliant as that theological truth is, uh, it doesn't tell the full story of what Christmas is about. Christmas is also about that um, we would miss out on the, the full uh, part of the story. Uh, Christmas is also about that God came to heal us. So in the story, Harriet Vane sees this guy, Lord Peter Wimsley, and she goes in her love, she, she heals him. And in the scripture, we're told that Jesus Christ came to be light among darkness. He came to be life in the middle of a desert where there was none. Here's what the scripture is implying about you and I. That in and of ourselves, we don't, we don't have light. Uh, it's in and of ourselves, we, we don't have life. And you know what's so interesting is that this is really interesting. It's really easy to see in other people, but it's really hard to see in ourselves. It's always easy to see the need somewhere else. It's always easy to label them as people who are really far off. Uh, but for ourselves, we just don't feel like we need anything. We certainly don't feel like we need a savior. We certainly don't feel like we're sinners. Now, one of the things that's so interesting about the human condition is that even if we thought we needed to be fixed or to be healed, uh, there's a piece of us that thinks that we could do it ourselves. Uh, when I was in high school, when I had hair, uh, I, I was trying to get fresh for the next morning and, you know, my barber shop was closed on Monday and I was, I was woofing out a little bit. So I said, you know what? I've seen barbers do this a thousand times. How hard can it be? I'm just going to clean it up a little bit, nothing too drastic. And I cut the clippers on, and as soon as I went to just kind of get off the, the loose ends a little bit, I just heard a loud noise, and I, heard, I felt a piece of hair just fly in front of my face, <laughs> like a jump shot. It was just like floating over my face. I covered my head. I said, all right, don't panic. It might not be that bad. I looked down at the mirror, and it was a huge bald spot. I'm like, why did I start there? Like, what? <laughs> I could have started like a million other places. I started in the worst potential spot, and... Um, But not to worry, this is the early 90s, and I had seen the GLH infomercial that was going all around uh, on on bad late night TV. GLH was a spray that you spray on bald spots. It was intended for prematurely balding men who wanted to uh, catfish someone, and... um, (laughs) And I arranged with a dealer to get my hands on some GLH spray on the Lolo, and... uh, The next morning, I sprayed, I got up in the mirror, I followed the instructions to a T, and I said, you know what, how how bad can this be? I sprayed it, and I didn't get too aggressive, you know what I'm saying? I just misted it on top of my head. And I got to class, and this dude was like, yo, bro, like, did you get into a fire? Like, what is this matte black, this matte black look on top of your head? It looked like I had a wig on. And uh, before you guys laugh at me too much, uh, there's a piece of all of us that thinks that The problems that we have, we can solve them ourselves. There's nothing about my history that said that I can solve the problem of a bald spot by myself. I needed a professional. I needed someone outside of me to do it. And here's what I know to be true about us. Even if you can acknowledge that there are some pieces of you that need to be healed, uh, your first impulse would be that you can fix it and you can heal it. Jesus Christ is a gift to us, but he's not a gift like a pair of boots that you've wanted He's not a a gift like something that you did not want. Jesus is a gift like a breath mint when someone offers it to you. And you're like, no, I'm good. And they're like, no, no, no. (laughs) Have it, please, I insist, please, I'm begging you. (laughs) Scripture tells us that Jesus uh, has come to heal us from our sins. Now, here's one of the interesting things about that. tells us that Jesus is light among darkness. Uh, To be healed of sin doesn't feel like it's a felt need. Uh, If you've studied psychology at any level, you know that there are certain needs that you have. There are uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The first are physiological, and these are biological requirements for your survival. Air, food, shelter, clothing, sneakers, uh, things that are vital (laughs) to your survival as a human being. Uh, The second is safety. Uh, All of us need safety. We, we, we don't want to uh, feel like um, we're vulnerable to any condition. And we're grateful no matter how much your rent is, I'm sure you're grateful to have a place to lay your head if you can afford one. Uh, and safety is a huge need that we feel at a deep down level. We, we know we desire to feel safe. Uh, another one is love and belonging. And love and belonging is a need that we all feel. Uh, nobody wants to just be alone. Part of the reason a lot of people even come to uh, church communities is because New York is such a lonely place that you're tired of going out with coworkers and just grabbing drinks that you haven't connected with anybody, but you want to belong somewhere. You want to be a part of a family, and you don't want to end this life one day alone. And that's, I can't think of a more terrifying thing than that. All of us want to go out notebook style, holding the hand of someone that you love and just taking a last breath together. Like, you ready? All right, come on. <laughs> That's the, that's the desire that we have because deep down inside, we wanna, we wanna be loved. We wanna belong to something. Esteem, we need self esteem and achievement and, and to, uh, to be independent and to have res- respect and uh, admiration from other people. And the last one is self actualization that you don't wanna waste your life. You don't want your life to be spent where you didn't actually achieve anything. Now, that need will never um, precede the need for, like, air, for example. But all of these things are felt needs that we have. But when we talk about, Jesus came to to heal us from our sin. That doesn't feel like it's a need for everybody. Now, it's really easy to see in them, but it's always hard to see in yourself. There's a scripture in Romans 7, and I'm going to read the the paraphrase version of it, where Paul is talking about this condition that he has, and you might be able to resonate with it. Uh, Here's what he says. He says, I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every single time. Paul talks about this, and he ends the chapter by saying, who will save me from this wretched body, from this great body of death? But thanks be to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hey, if you're being honest with yourself, Uh, I think you don't even live up to your own standards of your life. And Scripture doesn't say anything is necessarily uh, different about you than any other person on the planet. This is that you and I, as Scripture uh, describes us, is that we live in a sinful condition, and we don't need Jesus to be our advice giver. We need Jesus to be our Savior. And God came to do just that. I I remember uh, a couple of months ago... um, my wife and I uh, have two amazing kids, and, you know, the one thing that I didn't anticipate as fully going from one, one child to two kids was how real it was about to get, you know what I'm saying? I just didn't see it coming, and uh, we hit a point where I got sick, um, we weren't sleeping well, I, I had vertigo, and I was just feeling like I was nauseous all of the time, and that just did something to me. I was always, like, on the edge and cranky and not sleeping well. And ever since uh, both of my boys were born, I've looked at them and I promised to be a good father to them. Um, I have a fantastic pops, and we have a great relationship, and I've learned so much about what it means to love your sons just from from my dad, and I love my boys, and I wanted to be the best pops available on the planet for them. And one day, um, it was bath time, and I'm tired, I'm cranky, I'm sick, and my wife woke me up early from a nap. I thought it was going to go longer, but she... um, (laughs) And it was bath time, and my son is, like, not wanting to get in the bathtub. I'm like, get in the bathtub. And he's standing there, like, crying as I'm yelling at him to get in the bathtub. And I'm watching him just, like, scared. And I'm like, man, I I never want to be a dad that, like, abuses my son emotionally. I never want him to be someone that grows up in in fear of me. Uh, I don't want that to be our relationship at all. And I have a standard that I've set for myself on a thousand different occasions, and it's a good standard but I live beneath my own standard every single time. Inside of me, I have the desire to do good, and I lack the capacity to actually bring it out. And if we're true about our own lives, I'm sure if you thought about it, you can think about ways in your own life that you actually do need God to come in and heal you. And Jesus Christ offers us that, that to be in relationship with him is not just him giving you a hall pass and saying, I forgive you and I excuse you for what you're doing, but it's rather that Jesus enters your life in such a meaningful way that it heals you over time. Here's what the biggest misconception is about a relationship with God uh, through Jesus Christ. is that, oh, I'll go to church and I'll get forgiven for my sins. And any of my Catholics in here, you know what it's like to go to a confession and to do what you got to do. Say your Hail Marys and, you know, do what you have to do to receive forgiveness. And what happens is you start to believe that the extent of what God wants to do in your life is just to forgive you. Now, forgiveness is a glorious truth, but it is barely even half of the battle of what God wants to do in your life. Years ago, I was in court with a family member, a friend of mine, and um, uh, we were there for some issues, and we were sitting in court, and I was watching the judge basically hand out jail time like Skittles, and anytime someone didn't do their community service, the judge was like, all right, take them back. I turned to my family member, I looked at him like, yeah, that's crazy because we good, right? Because you did your community service. He was like, uh, no, not really. And I was like, dude, she's about to throw you in jail. And most of the time I was in court and I was pretty confident. Um, And that day I was nowhere near confident because I knew the only thing keeping him from jail was the judge's mercy. We got to the bench and I I said, Your Honor, and I I laid out whatever I was going to say in a very speedy 10 seconds of conversation. And for whatever reason the judge let him go. She was merciful to him. We ran out of that courtroom so fast. It was like before she changed <laughs> her mind, come on, let's go. And as great as the forgiveness he received, the great as the mercy was that day, he has no relationship with that judge. All she did was excuse him for a wrong. When we talk about God coming to heal us, we're talking about more than God coming to excuse you from wrongdoings, but rather God entering into your life in such a meaningful way. That his life becomes your life. My wife gets to me all the time because whenever one of my friends, uh, some of my, co- my, my college friends from Morgan, come up to uh, New York or we, we go to see each other, she's like, yo, the way you talk is just so different when you're with them. You guys have like your own slang. And to be around them, I start to change, hopefully in a good way. Here's what I think scripture is telling us uh, about the nature of change and transformation. Jesus is after much more than a transaction. He's after your transformation, and he does that by entering into your life. Here's what I would be looking for for you this week, and here's what I'm praying in my own life. It's that, God, show me. Show me where you want to write yourself into my story, and God, I want to let you in to change me, to heal me. Now, scripture writers were so confident that Jesus was going to walk with people and change people that in Philippians 1 and 6, Paul says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, he'll complete it. It's not that he's going to start you out and let you figure it out on your own. But the one who began a good work in your life will complete it until the coming of the Lord Jesus. What God is after in your life is your transformation. He has come to heal you. And if you'll allow him, if you'll give him access to your life, especially the parts that you don't want, you don't want him to have access to, especially the parts that you'd rather hide from other people, he'll change you from the inside out. Now, God wants to come near to us to, to heal us. And that healing is certainly much more than a feeling. And you know what this also means? This means that you don't need to know what the next step is in your life. Uh, One of the most famous psalms is the 23rd Psalm. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it gives this beautiful picture of a shepherd walking with his sheep. And here's the thing about sheep. They are dumb, defenseless animals. They cannot defend themselves. Uh, There's times where like, some sheep would die just from being on their back. Like, if they got flipped over, they would just be in the air with their legs w- <laughs> waving. That's how defense, defenseless they were. They didn't know what the best way to go is. Some sheep would eat so much grass that they would basically, their stomach would almost over-inflate that the shepherd would have to, like, uh, stab the, the sheep, prison-style, right in the gut to release the, the air from, uh, from the sheep's gut. They'll eat themselves to death. They'll do things so much in excess that they will kill themselves. They will walk right into the wolf. They they are not intelligent animals. And when scripture says that God is our shepherd, he's saying this, you don't have to have the defenses on your own. You don't have to have the plans on your own. All you need to do is follow the voice of the shepherd. And here's what Jesus says, I'm not like the other shepherds. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. In scripture, in ancient Israel history, that is a crazy concept. There's not one shepherd on the planet that would lay down his life for his sheep. You could buy a 1,000 sheep. They're not going to give up the shepherd for that. Here's what Jesus says about his involvement and his desire to enter into your life. I'm the good shepherd that I'll give my life for my sheep. The one who was all glory came and lost it for me and for you. So God wants to heal us. And the third thing is that um, the story about Christmas is that God came out of love. God has not come out of anger. God looked into his people that he created, and he loved us, and he came down. Here's the things, some things about real love. Real, lo- real love empathizes and it identifies. If you want to see a, a, a relationship that is actually uh, full of love, it's, it's where empathy exists. And one of the things I, I see in talking to a lot of couples, both married and wanting to get married, is that whenever there's not like real empathy for the other person, man, you're just on a speeding train towards arguments. You're on a speeding train towards the marriage actually dissolving. Because if I can't truly empathize with you in all your situations, then I'm going to be so hard on you. I'm going to hold you to a ridiculous standard that I know you can't be at. Here's the beauty of what Jesus is to us. It says in Hebrews 4 and 15, We do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Here's what Scripture tells us in Hebrews 4 and 15, that God can empathize and sympathize and identify with all of your issues. Now, the Bible says that Jesus remained without sin. It's not saying he went down that path as well to commit the acts, but it is saying that he understands pieces of you. I always know that in a room like this, there are people who are struggling with stuff that, man, nobody knows this about you. Your spouse, your brother, your sister, your parents will know this about you. Maybe it's an addiction that you've been hiding for so long. And the thing that's keeping you to hold it down so long is because, God forbid, anybody would ever find out because you don't think that anybody would understand that. And I'm going to tell you who does understand what that temptation is like. It's Jesus. One of the most helpful things you can do is speak to someone who actually understands and empathizes with you, who can know where you're coming from. Uh, my wife and I are both widowed, and we lost our late spouses about nine, uh, eight, nine years ago. And one of the things that was most helpful to me was talking to someone else who lost his wife. And there was a couple of people who I would talk to, and man, they'd be on the other end of the phone not saying anything, and at the end of me rambling for 45 minutes, I would just say, oh, man, thank you so much. That was a great conversation. And they're like, dude, I didn't say anything. I just sat there and listened to you tell the same story over and over again. What was healing for me was that I knew he understood what I was talking about. Real love empathizes and understands and identifies. God came close to us, and God identifies with us. God is not ashamed of you. Real love always empathizes and identifies Jesus can handle your weaknesses. The second thing that's always true is that real love always expresses itself through sacrifice. One of the main reasons that we talk about Jesus and the cross so often is that it wasn't nails that held Jesus' hands to the cross. It was his love that kept him up there. In Hebrews 12 and 2, it says, It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross And that is a picture of real love. Real love always expresses itself through sacrifice. If you want to know somebody who loves you, see who is rocking with you when when you are all the way down. See who's willing to hang out with you when you don't have anything to yourself. The person who says, yo, I asked you if you were hungry. I didn't ask you if you had money. Come on, let's get out. Let's get something to eat. Real love always expresses itself through sacrifice. Years ago, when I was working in family court, there was a mother whose son just kept getting arrested and over and over and over again getting arrested. And at first, she showed up to court and she was coming from work during her lunch break. And eventually, her son just kept getting arrested. And she had a choice to make. She could either let her son go to court by himself, which would have led to a worse situation for him, or she can keep on going to court, risk her own job, and she eventually lost it. Eventually, I didn't see her in her work clothes. She lost her job and would come with bags into her eyes because the only job that she could get now was cleaning up bathrooms in the midnight shift. And she did that for her son because she loved him. Real love always expresses itself through sacrifice. When God came through Jesus and went to the cross, it was to show, to demonstrate, for God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly, Romans 5 and 6. And the last thing that's true about love is that real love always wants proximity. Real love always wants to be close. My wife and I, we were long distance dating when we first met each other. And after a few weeks, she was begging me and begging me like, please, can I move to New York um, to be near you? (laughs) And she doesn't have the microphone, so she can't. (laughs) Uh, But the true story, the real story is that I would... Man, I, I always just wanted to be near her, and I knew eventually one of us was going to have to move and, and be close to each other. Man, I was working at a, a church downtown doing a residency, and I would, like, make up reasons, and I would just, like, leave work and pretend like I was going to a meeting and just hop on a boat bus, you know what I'm saying, for those Thursday dollar deals and, and to go to D.C. I was a platinum member on <laughs> boat bus. And uh, in my heart, I, I, I craved proximity to her. It was not enough to love her from a distance. Jesus coming on Christmas means that God loves you so much that he desires proximity, and real love always, always, always wants proximity. Here's the, uh, the truth about me and you. You, don't, you, might not need, you might not know what it would take for you to have proximity and to get close to God, and like I said, you're sheep. We're sheep. We don't have to know how to do that. But I would love to have a conversation with you or one of our pastors would love to talk to you about what it would look like for you to come near to God. To say, Jesus, I know you've come to all these lengths to be close to me, and I just want to find out what it means to be closer to you. On your way in, all of you receive the next step card. Uh, Basically, a next step card is just our way of connecting with you if you want to have conversations about what it would look like for you to take that next step and be closer to Jesus. Now, you can drop those off at the info desk right after service. And if you do that, man, we would love to reach out and talk to you. You're not committing to anything by doing that. All you're saying is, I want to hear more about a next step. And if you've already made that next step and you're already a follower of Jesus and and maybe you came into church today even beating yourself up a little bit about the things you've done or, or haven't done, here's what I want to say to you. God has come down, not to lecture you, but because he loves you. And during this next time when we're worshiping, I just want you to receive the gift that Jesus is, the God who has come down written himself into his own story, to be near to us, to heal us out of his love. Don't ever reverse that order. Don't ever buy the lie that you and I need to perform to get his love, but rather to, uh, that, to ask God to help you to receive this great gift that we have in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, you know all about us. You know our hangups, you know our, our frustrations, you know our fears. You know the areas that we don't know what we don't know. And Father, I just pray that you would lead us in a way that we would see you in all your glory through Jesus. and We would be invited and welcomed into this relationship. That we would lay down the things that are holding us back. and We would run to you knowing that in you we find open arms. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.